because the gradient of gravity is so steep near a black hole. The gravity is so much stronger, say, if you were falling feet first into a black hole, it'd be so much stronger at your feet than at your head that you'd get stretched out like spaghetti, essentially, into almost just one long, thin chain of atoms. If that happened first and you were falling into an active black hole, you'd probably essentially get fried. <laughs> you could probably experience the spaghettification. Pride or blinded, one of the two. I love this episode. I suppose in a sense it is a departure from the show's typical episodes, typical themes, although I guess that's even hard to categorise. Where does a man who ate his friends fit in? Where does the coffin confessor fit in? So maybe in a show that defies logic and categorization and being typecast, black holes and supermassive black holes are actually a great fit. Black holes aren't black, they're the brightest things in the universe. Black holes aren't holes, they're the most densely packed with material things in the universe. And that's just the beginning in terms of how mad and crazy and logic-defying black holes are. And we've got a big name in the astrology field to talk about them today in the form of Rebecca Smethurst who also goes by Dr Becky or just Becky. Becky or Dr Becky is an astrophysicist author and YouTuber with a huge channel called Dr. Becky. She's won all sorts of prizes in physics and astronomy, but her best ability is being able to break down that complex stuff into enjoyable and accessible and easy to understand bites for lay people like me. And I mean, the thing is you do get, I think if anyone's going, oh no, space and physics, like, oh, that's not really, for, you know, it does have a very human side. And I, I encourage anyone, if you do end up enjoying this without expecting to, go back and listen to the one with Colin Stewart who talks about the, the fact that you know our loved ones are still out there in space but in a different part of t space time and it's it's very beautiful there's a lot of this stuff is really about who we are and where we come from and Dr Becky talks today about what would happen if you fell into a black hole what the science of the movie Interstellar gets wrong and what will happen at the end of the universe get her book Space 10 Things You Should Know and her other brilliant book that I read before the show A Brief History of Black Holes they're the weirdest things in the universe so do stick with this to learn about what happens if you fall into one keep listening I've got some great episodes lined up with True Crime Survivors MLM multi-level marketing cult survivors and a couple of very big names that I'm still waiting for clearance from lawyers for but now you're on the edge of space and time and black holes with Dr. Becky Smethurst. Have you seen the latest news that Tom Cruise is expected to be the first civilian to do a space war? <laughs> no. Of course, I mean, if it was going to be anyone, it was going to be Tom Cruise, right? He's like hung off the side of a plane. Of course, he's going to do a space war. But like, I'm just kind of jealous because like it would be so much fun to go through astronaut training. But then part of me, part of me is like, I'm the person that always wants a window seat. So I would probably jump at the chance to be like Tom Cruise and be the first civilian, like, you know, spacewalk. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm very happy just being an astronomer and using telescopes and keeping my feet on the ground, to be quite honest, and just looking at space rather than being in there. It would be good, though. It would be good, though, wouldn't it? It would be good. Yeah. I'm kind of jealous. Yeah. Is, is, there, is there, like, anything, like, in... You know you see all the space movies, they have to train for so long. Is there something, like, intrinsic about space that makes it very, very difficult for civilians to just go and do a spacewalk? I think if you're not used to the sort of, you know, following commands and in, in that kind of regimented way that the military is so used to, I think it can be quite jarring. And also you've got to keep massively cool under all sorts of situations. So there was, you know, an incident once where I think it was with, um, was it Commander Hatfield? I think it was, where his, his, um, his visor started filling up with water and he couldn't see. And like the recordings from that, you just he just remains so calm during the whole process. And you can imagine oh that a civilian who isn't trained to do that would just start to panic. So it's that kind of like, you know, keeping your cool under that scenario. It's why astronauts, you know, not only do they have to do PhDs, so they've done some sort of useful uh, science so that they can continue that science on board the ISS, but they usually come from a military background as well and have some pilot training or something like that. Oh my god, why did water start just filling? Was this while he was on a spacewalk? Yeah, it was something from that, I think it was the coolant system from his spacesuit just basically started leaking. Oh, yeah. oh that'd be awful. Yeah. Okay, so then 
Also, and this is a bit of a silly question, but it leads on to, it's actually something that I thought would have been ridiculous and impossible, but reading your book is sort of, well, it's not, but it is. Could he fall into a black hole? Because there could be black holes in our solar system, which I'd never even considered. There could be a black hole in our solar system. And people hear me say that and they think, oh no. And I'm like, no, it'd be the coolest thing ever if we had a black hole at the edge of our solar system. And I think it comes down to this thing that we're... People don't realize that if there was a black hole at the edge of the solar system, it wouldn't pull us in. We'd be completely safe from it. You know, uh, I always like to say black holes don't suck because <laughs> they don't. It's actually really <laughs> difficult to get material down into a black hole. There's a whole host of processes that have to happen. So, you know, if there was a black hole on the edge of the solar system that was, say, 10 times heavier than the Earth, it would just be like having a planet 10 times heavier than the Earth on the edge of the solar system as well. It's just, it's really dense and compressed and only if you got too close to it would it be an issue. But otherwise, I'm all for it. Let's have a pet black hole in the solar system. <laughs> Why wouldn't we see it though? Because, so light sort of bends around it a bit. So the stars, wouldn't there be like a black bit in the sky where there's like weird, distorted, starry stuff that we'd see? There would be if it was big enough. So the reason that we think there might be a black hole at the edge of the solar system is we've thought for a really long time that there was a planet we've not found yet at the very edge of the solar system that's sort of messing up a lot of the orbits of stuff we can see like there it's sort of shepherding them around strangely so it's like there must be something out there doing that shepherding um and if it was a black hole that was say 10 times the mass of earth the problem is because black holes are so dense with matter crushed into this tiny tiny space the area that would do that warping the event horizon as we call it that point of no return where you don't get any light from it that would be the size of a tennis ball oh so imagine spotting a tennis ball at double the distance of Pluto. It's, it's insane. So it, only if you had like a perfect alignment with a star in the background, which would be incredibly rare, would you see may, maybe a brief brightening of that star because the black hole acted a little bit like a lens, almost like a magnifying glass you put in front of a, a bright light. Um, then you might be able to see it. But basically we're just waiting around <laughs> to see if that happens um but it could be anywhere on the sky as well and stuff you know brightens and dims on the sky all the time because stars pulse and things go supernova and asteroids sort of reflect more light and don't so there's so much stuff changing on the sky it's hard to pick anything like that out so we're trying like it's not for what to try it i think all of us would love this idea of a black hole at the edge of the solar system but um yeah we've not the evidence for it yet i would love that as well i get so excited about this stuff but then also i don't know the the science enough to really understand it i love reading your book do you want to give us a little you know rundown of you know what it's called and and what what it's about sure yeah so it's called a brief history of black holes i have one here it's beautiful i basically told it them is make it pretty and make it shiny and i think they delivered on that um so it's got a brief history of black holes and why nearly everything you know about them is wrong and essentially what it does is it challenges a lot of the misconceptions around black holes by walking you through the history of the science and our history of our understanding so like we used to think this but then we found this and so that's why we dismissed that and now we think this instead and i think by knowing the history of how people thought at different times over the past two three hundred years and also hearing the human stories behind the discoveries that were made as well is almost so more so much more important it connects you so much more to the science and to the ideas that you remember a little bit more but also you understand it better as well and you understand why black holes are black but why they're also some of the brightest objects in the universe and why we think there might be one on the edge of the solar system as well do you get excited when there are movies that come out did you watch interstellar <laughs> I did watch Interstellar. <laughs> I have very strong <laughs> opinions over Interstellar. So, I oh. mean, I absolutely love the fact that they took a real astrophysics simulation of a black hole and rendered it beautifully with the visual effects on what it would actually look like to our eyes if you could see it. And that was fantastic to see, you know, something that you'd seen in a simulation where it was just a handful of, like, particles that were you know standing in for loads of stars or gas or something you know actually visually what that might look like in reality so that was amazing to see the rest of the physics in the story 
<laughs> like the end. Well, Professor Brian Cox was on it, wasn't he? You don't want to criticize Professor Brian Cox. Am I right about that? Was he? Was he? Did he like? I know that Kip Thorne, who's a very famous American physicist, did the um, most of the sort of uh, liaison about the black hole and the black hole physics and what they'd experienced. So that whole story of them landing on the planet, orbiting the black hole and experiencing less time than the guy they left there. Oh my God, it was like excruciating to watch it, knowing he'd be like yeah. 50 years old by the time they got back. Um, that was obviously all correct science. The whole bit of the ending, and obviously spoilers here if you haven't seen it, that ending was just, like from a physicist's perspective, it was like you can't just chuck, it was like watching a Marvel film that they just qu chucked quantum in front of everything and it just didn't make any sense. <laughs> and it was just like, what you were like, what? It, it, no, <laughs> like, it just gave me such a headache. Oh, what a shame. I love it. Yeah. He, he falls into a black hole and then mm. his library is, the library bookshelf <laughs> of his daughter's bedroom is in the black hole. So you're telling me that, Matthew McConaughey's daughter's library's bed bedroom library is not in a black hole. I mean, I'm 99.99999% certain that it's not. However, there is no way of knowing such as the nature of black holes. You know, you kind of have to resign yourself to never knowing what's beyond the event horizon. You know, it could be some exotic form of matter that we don't know about that's, you know, now it's, you know, like it's no longer a star or a neutron star. It's some other form of star but we just can't see it because it's so dense that light can't escape from its surface or it could be how we describe it mathematically which is what we call a singularity where all the matter is crushed into an infinitely small infinitely dense point that is undefinable completely um to quote Lindsay lohan in mean girls the limit does not exist that's <laughs> what it is mathematically when does she say that she says it in math when they're in the mathletes competition she like buzzes in for the last question she's like the limit does not exist and he's like that is correct <laughs> <laughs> and i always think that's it's a singularity basically like, i love that film they say singularity a lot in interstellar i think as well um and then yeah the book scene but maybe it wasn't that supposed to be like oh it's not really a black hole it's a man-made because he was like they made it so it was some sort of man-made wormhole there was a there was a wormhole wormhole in the film as well and I, get, I think people get very confused between the difference between wormhole and black hole a wormhole is not a black hole because a black hole you can't escape a wormhole the whole idea of it is that you can travel through it and pop out the other side and go on your merry way if it was a black hole you'd never go anywhere um, a wormhole is just this idea of it just connects two points in space and around it the sort of mathematics of describing it is the same but it's not a black hole otherwise you'd get stuck so I think when he's talking about they made it, it's like, you know, these other people who made this wormhole that they found, I think, on the edge of Saturn, which personally was my sort of favorite part of the film, because I was like, ooh, look at Saturn. Doesn't it look pretty? <laughs> I just I just go there to get the view, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, it did look cool. I've heard you can use a wormhole for time travel, but only to go back as far as when the wormhole was made. Um, It depends. So this is the thing. It's it's very difficult to describe this when you can't use maths but i will try um, <laughs> so um a wormhole is this idea of connecting two places in space is how we think of it the thing is time is also intrinsically tied to space and the speed that you experience time to the how fast you're traveling or how slow you're traveling as well so when Einstein, for example, describes gravity or describes movement through space, he talks about space-time as one word, space-time. It's all interlinked. So the idea that, okay, you can punch a hole through space to pop out somewhere else, there is also this possibility that you could do that with time. However, we have no way of doing that physically like you can you can do it mathematically you can be like hey fourth time dimension da, da, da. yeah there's the mathematics of it but where it like where is that fourth time dimension right that's not something we can physically grasp right now it's not something we understand on an experimental level and on a theoretical level then this is this is one of my favorite theories because again i think it was brian cox said it like years ago he was talking about if so if, if there's just time space in, and it is sort of like a 3D or a whatever map, and I'm talking in very layperson um, terms here, then everything that's happened and will happen is sort of somewhere on a map somewhere, obviously, that we can't access. So all like, you know, your lost loved ones and things like that, all the, the memories that are lost 
Uh, and you can imagine how he said it with sort of music and violins and things happening. <laughs> Standing on a clifftop somewhere, yeah. <laughs> Drone Hair shot. Eyes, yeah. <laughs> sort of doing the whole, the whole thing down there. Lost to time. Everything yeah. is lost to time. The billions of people before you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's quite good. Oh, but you're, you're from near where he's from, aren't you? You're- yeah, I think he's from Oldham, which is South Manchester. And I'm from uh, Chorley, Bolton Way, which is sort of northwest Manchester. So... Yeah, stone's throw, but close enough. <laughs> I've been to Bolton. I went to the football stadium when they played Tottenham. Reebok? Uh, yeah, many, it's not the Reebok anymore. Yeah. But. What is it? Light drizzle at the Reebok stadium. That was what they always used to say. <laughs> what, what was it for first? <laughs> uh, yeah, they just have to say Reebok. You don't need to say uh, light drizzle. Macron, it's no. It's yeah, just... no, it's just the Reebok, yeah. But. So is that true? Is that... Are they all out there? Are our lost loved ones sort of out there in space-time with younger us? I think it depends on, I mean, how you... Vis- I mean, it's really, when we try and picture space-time, we're always going to put some sort of, you know, visualisation on it that our brain can wrap its head around. And so the idea of them all being out there comes from this idea of, okay, in the mathematics, when you describe a position, you know, you can describe a position in space as X, Y, Z, right? You know, how far up are you or down how far left and right and how far forward and backward are you but you can also add this fourth dimension of time and so there is a coordinate like x y z and t in time and so mathematically yes there are these positions in both in space time where you would define you know this person having lived and died and etc etc um and so in in mathematics Yes, there is. In reality, you know, if we try and picture that, you know, you can pick, we picture it like a timeline almost. And the question is whether can you move through that timeline in the same way that you can move through space? Mathematically, yes. Again, experimentally, no, not, we can't at the minute. We're not capable of that. But even if we can't do it, does it suggest that it, it is there somewhere in space time all our memories and things are being played out this is, gets really philosophical i guess at the same time is that it's not a question i don't think physics can answer memories what it what is a memory you, for that you have to go to the neuroscientists and is that just electrical signals and where are they do they have a physical space or do they only exist within that person's brain Oh you know, it's it gets very deep very quickly, right? And I always say the neuroscientists are the only ones, the only other scientists that can really, like, give us a run for our money as astrophysicists in terms of big numbers. Because, you know, in the brain, you've got so many billions of neurons and all this kind of stuff as well. They're the ones that rival us. Yeah, they can read um, minds now. I had um, Dr. Marvin Chun, who's a dean of Yale, on, and he was talking about um, you can read what people are thinking and seeing, but they don't yet have the tech to zone in on one neuron because then they'll have a really good idea whereas they have to sort of take impressions from like millions of neurons at once mm, yeah yeah that sounds amazing amazing how much sort of stuff from sci-fi is becoming almost like reality right minority report that is that stuff <laughs> oh yeah precog. another one for tom cruise maybe we could combine minority <laughs> report and tom cruise in space and somehow make a sequel <laughs> yeah Oh, he'll be, yeah. I, I got a lot of people watch my channel are very um, um, critical of Tom Cruise because of the Scientology stuff. But uh, And they believe, that's also alien stuff. That might be why he wants to get into space, actually, because their belief is in something called Lord Xenu, who is, is from a, uh, space. It's like an alien. Wow, how have I never heard about this? I think, you know, I think I was quite happy going through my life not hearing about <laughs> this. <laughs> Oh yeah, Lord Zenu. Um, I think it was that like he, there was a big war in space, and he expelled all the thetans, body thetans, which are souls, and they all went into volcanoes in the Earth, and then they've gone into all the people here, um, and so it's all to do with aliens and stuff like. What, like sort of uh, spawning life on Earth? Is that the idea? I mean, to be fair, weirdly, it's not that far from an actual scientific hypothesis, which is that life on Earth could have been spawned by not necessarily aliens but comets and asteroids delivering the ingredients to earth for life that could have come from um interstellar systems so could have been you know life may have started around a star a few hundred light years away those ingredients might have made it onto a comet in that system that system's traveled to the solar system and then it impacted with the early earth and then you all of a sudden got things like water and hydrocarbons and amino acids and proteins that are the building blocks for life and one of the early interesting questions i find is you know this whole search for life on mars 
Mm-hmm. So people like search for life on Mars, search for life on Mars, just because the old hell idea of you know finding life on Mars would be incredible, right? But I think the more interesting question if we find life on Mars, like evidence for past life that used to live there that might have died out now, the more interesting question is, does it look similar to life on Earth? Because if it does, then you know it has a common origin. Like for example, comets and asteroids bringing the same ingredients to Earth and Mars. Or in the very early solar system, there was lots of little rocks left over from the formation. They could have impacted Earth and almost like sent stuff flying over to Mars. If it looks incredibly different, then you know that they had a completely different evolution that was independent of each other. And that you know then that life can start independently, no matter the conditions. Oh, then it's everywhere. Uh, yeah, and then that has so many implications for how, where you find life and where you, where, how life could come about and all this kind of stuff as well. So I just think that's the more fascinating question. Yes, it would be cool to find life on Mars, but it would be even cooler to know, is it similar to Earth or is it different to Earth? Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think there is um, life in the solar system? And, and where do you think the most likely place to find it would be, like alive now? Yeah, I'll be alive now, that's not Earth. I always say this and people are like, uh, mm. Earth? Um, would be, <laughs> I think, around the moons of Saturn. Um, and people, I mean, I am quite biased because Saturn, I will admit, is my favourite planet because it just looks beautiful. Um, but the moons of Saturn are some very interesting places. So you have one called Enceladus, which we think is this icy crust over what is essentially a liquid ocean of water, of mostly water. Um, So the Cassini probe that was around Saturn for years, for decades, has flown through essentially like plumes that have come up like a geyser from the crust of Enceladus and flown through it and found water and proteins and amino acids and all these kind of things that you would expect to find where life is present. So, and, and having it under a liquid ocean that might be heated by some internal, you know, like call it geothermal on Earth, obviously it would be geothermal, it would be Enceladus thermal, I guess it would be some sort of volcanic process. You could imagine quite a, a warm ocean where you might have life present that, you know, doesn't need that much sunlight or, or at all um, to, to survive. Um, so it wouldn't be life probably as we know it here on Earth, but it would could still be life in sort of a microbacterial form. Um, so I think there's some missions to Saturn being planned for future in the future to sort of investigate the possibility of life on its moons. Do you think that would be the biggest discovery of all time? Yeah, 100%. If we found life anywhere outside of Earth, I think it would be not just the biggest discovery for science, but I think that the shockwaves it would send through the entirety of humanity in terms of reconsidering our place in the universe, our supposed importance <laughs> in the universe as well, and, and just sort of, you know, people's own place uh, and beliefs as well. I know it's really unlikely, but I'd like to imagine there's like these sort of dolphin people there that can talk to each other and have a society. <laughs> yeah. and all, But that's that's probably unlikely, isn't it? Probably, yeah. If, if we find anything, it's going to be microbial, probably. That's the most likely. I mean, we'd love to be proved wrong, but it's given the conditions out there that's what we'd expect the kind of things that you find 
you know in undersea thermal vents on earth as well um it's kind of like you know, like plankton and, and microbial life all that kind of stuff very small life forms um that's the kind of thing we'd expect to find probably with no if, if it is anything bigger than that it would have like no eyes i'm imagining like in caves i mean you never know like the fact that every mammal on earth pretty much has eyes not not just mammal but every creature on earth pretty much has eyes suggests this common origin for us i think it's something like octopuses you can trace back to having evolved differently because their eyes are slightly different so you know whether microbes or organisms on other planets have eyes ears or the same senses as us is very interesting and also like if the atmospheres of those planets filter sunlight differently to ours, they could view different types of light. So the whole reason that we have eyes that are sensitive to what we call optical or visible light, basically the light of the rainbow, is because our atmosphere of Earth lets through sunlight in that region. And it's the most sunlight that makes it to the ground. And our sun also gives off sort of light peak at that point as well. Whereas other atmospheres could filter that visible light and only let through infrared light or UV light. And so the organisms might have developed eyes to see in those wavelengths of light instead in the infrared or ultraviolet or wherever it might be, which I think is really interesting. And also they, they might not even be what we call carbon-based life forms, right? So for example, Titan, which is Saturn's largest moon, we think has lots of methane lakes, rivers, oceans running on it. So instead of liquid water, you've got liquid methane. So that could suggest you might have, you know, a different sort of base life form living on it that wouldn't need oxygen and water to survive. It would need methane instead. And it might not be carbon-based. It could be silicon-based, for example, instead. You just don't, we just don't know. Oh, it's so fascinating. I, I just, I hope we find out a lot more of this stuff in, in our lifetime. I mean, yeah. it's, it is interesting reading your book and you go back to uh, like this book that was called like Modern Science, I think. Modern Astronomy. Yeah. Mm. Oh, right. And what, so what in a hundred years, yeah, would they like look back at us? There might be so many discoveries, but in the moment it feels like nothing. It feels like nothing ever happened. I want to wake up every day and like, oh, there's a new, but nothing's happening. It's stuff happening, but I just don't know. Yeah. Oh my, since we've launched the James Webb Space Telescope, so much is happening. Like, for example, so we, the James Webb Space Telescope, sees the universe in infrared light. So slightly longer wavelengths than red light that we see with our eyes. And because the universe is expanding, light is getting stretched out to longer wavelengths all the time as it comes towards us. And the longer the light travels through the universe, the longer and longer it gets stretched. So the very first sort of stars and galaxies that formed, you know, that have now are at very great distances and the light's taken the entire life of the universe to reach us. We, it's no longer visible light that's been, that when it left it was visible, but it's been stretched to infrared. So the Hubble Space Telescope physically cannot even see those things because it can't detect the light from them. So James Webb is revealing so much that we've never seen before and also at greater detail as well. So like all our models and theories of the universe are based on what we've seen previously, like the best picture we had previously. And we're slowly learning, oh, there's bits that are wrong in there. Like we thought that beautiful spiral galaxies didn't start until later in the universe. For example, it took time for them to, everything to calm down and for that to form. But it turns out you see them at much further distances. It's just that we couldn't make them out before. They were fuzzy taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. So we're having to change all our models of the universe of what's going on with JWST. I mean, it, I mean, we're talking about Mars, I guess, a lot. With Mars, you've got NASA's InSight rover on there detecting Mars quakes every day and learning what the inside of Mars is look like. You know, you've then got the Mars rover, Percy, as we like to call it, Perseverance, currently on, on Mars with its little helicopter drone ingenuity, Percy and Ginny. We've said we should get another one up there called Rendezvous and we can call it Ron and then we'll have three Weasleys <laughs> on Mars. Um, but, uh, you know, you've got them on Mars as well that are, you know, drilling into the surface of Mars, trying to find evidence for life on there as well. We're going to try and bring those core samples back to Earth. So there is sort of stuff, maybe not every day, but every week, there's always a new study that comes out that's like, oh, we found something new. Like just this week, the closest black hole to Earth was found. Oh, 
What was that about? <laughs> yeah, it was found and it's something like 1,600 light years away. And it makes, because I talked about the closest black hole to Earth in my book. And now I'm like, oh, it's not, it's the second closest now. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I mean, it's not something that's harmful or dangerous or anything like that. It's just a black hole that's orbiting another star out there in the universe, fairly close, just happens to be fairly close. I mean, I say fairly close. It takes like 1,600 years to travel from there to us, but still, like it's astronomically close. I remember Stephen Hawking wanted to send these like paper aeroplanes on a, this is again how I'm describing it, on a laser beam to places. But I guess even that would take, yeah, over 1,600 years to get there. But is, is, is that still happening? Do you know what I mean? They're sending stuff out on lasers. Um, I know that when he died, they sent out a signal in the direction of what was the closest black hole to us previously. Um, I mean, you say send on lasers, like any information, any signal we send out into space, say that's to like communicate with a Martian rover, for example, that's all sent by light. It's all encoded on radio waves usually. Um, so I presume that's what they've done there. They've sent out a, like a, a beam of a signal or something like that that's just constantly going towards that closest black hole or, or something like that. I think it was, yeah, it was called Starshot. And I don't know if it even happened. It was like a thing they wanted to do like six years ago. And it was set, send out like thousands of tiny things with like little cameras on them with laser beams that would go close to the speed of light. I haven't heard that. Uh, at all <laughs> but maybe it's because it didn't make it off the ground <laughs> breakthrough star shot yuri milner stephen hawking and someone well i don't think it's happened unfortunately which is a bit, <laughs> bit of a shame um we should talk a bit more about black holes of course yes. i mean we, we touched on them of course at the beginning so tell me like just the most lay understanding of what a black hole is uh, a black hole is a collapsed star so a star's life is this constant fight between gravity pulling inwards and then basically the energy from fusion pushing outwards so fusing hydrogen into helium when that hydrogen fuel runs out gravity wins and it crushes everything inwards so you started with something that was three-dimensional in a star and you just keep crushing it and crushing it and crushing it until it gets smaller and smaller and smaller up until the point where the gravity is so strong that you'd have to be traveling faster than light at three hundred thousand kilometers a second to escape the pull of that gravity of that object. Nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, according to Einstein's theory of special relativity. So essentially they're these 3D spheres where we get no light, no information, no data, nothing. They're like prisons for light in the universe. See, if it was just that, I think for someone who's not science interested in science and stuff, it's just like, okay, well now it's just a black thing or whatever. But firstly, I gather they're not actually black or holes. And also <laughs> like, at the center of them, time stops, right? Yeah, so, I mean, they're not holes because of that description I essentially just gave. People picture them as the literal emptiness in space, but they're more like almost like mountains of matter that's just crushed into, into one space. They are this sort of 3D spherical object. It's why people ask me like, you know, what's on the other side of a black hole? And it's like saying, well, what's on the other side of the moon? Just go to the other side of this spherical object. <laughs> you know, it's the same for a black hole. Um, and yeah, they're not black because well, they're black because they obviously trap light around there, but actually they can pull matter into them, accelerate it to huge speeds as it sort of spirals into the black hole, which then heats it up and it starts to glow in X-ray light, UV light, visible light. And it's incredibly, incredibly bright. Some of the brightest objects in the entire universe essentially is a growing black hole. So it's very interesting when you model mathematically what happens inside a black hole because we don't know of any process that can stop the collapse down that can resist the crush of gravity to just take it down to an infinitely small infinitely dense point that's how we describe it mathematically and so when you get beyond what we call the event horizon that sort of sphere that surrounds this infinitely dense point where you have to be traveling fast in the speed of light it's sort of like the point of no return once you get beyond that point your future is already determined for you. You can't turn around and accelerate back out again. If you accelerate, you accelerate closest, closer to this singularity where all the mass is constrained. So that means that because your future is determined, that you know where you're going in time, not just in space, is also determined. And once you get to that singularity, there's nowhere else for you to go in space or time. So technically almost like time stops for you 
at the very center um i was like to say it's once you get past the event horizon you can't stop tomorrow from coming you know in the same way um you can't escape like you can't stop tomorrow from coming there's also this interesting idea that people misunderstand as well that they think time stops at the event horizon because if you were to, and I go into this in the book as well, what you would see if you fell into a black hole and if you were watching someone else fall into a black hole. Um, so this idea that um, as, if you're watching someone else fall into a black hole and say they were like like a lighthouse just sending a flash every minute to be like, I'm here, I'm still here, I'm good, I'm good. To them, they'd keep doing that every minute and they'd f fall towards the black hole and pass the event horizon and wouldn't know any different. To somebody watching it, there's something that happens uh, called time dilation, where essentially as you get closer to the black hole, the stronger gravity, the slower time goes for you. So it would feel like a minute to you on the spacecraft, but to you watching someone fall in, you would essentially get those one minute pulses, like there would be longer, there would be there would be more time between each of those pulses that you would have to wait to get them because the person on the spacecraft is getting in stronger gravity and experiencing time slower than you. So it would be a minute, then it'd be a minute and 10 seconds, then a minute and 30 seconds, then two minutes, and then endless and endless and endless, and endless until they got to the event horizon, at which point you'd be waiting for an infinite amount of time to get that last light pulse before they cross, you know, after they cross the event horizon. But it would never come. And so you would almost see them frozen there with that last pulse of light that they would send. Hence why almost to you, it appears like time stops for them on the event horizon, but actually they'd crossed it, no bother. They were just experiencing time slower than you. So theoretically, if, <laughs> so obviously there was that interstellar thing we talked about before where they went down onto this planet that was near enough to a black hole or something and their gravity was really strong on the planet. And so when they came out, the person was 20 years older who had been waiting up where the gravity wasn't like that. So if you, I know you can't get out of a, black hole <laughs> but if you got to the bit where time stopped and then you came out wouldn't the whole of universe everything would no longer exist and it would be billions and billions of it wouldn't it would just be forever after but time doesn't really stop that's the thing it only appears to stop for someone watching you an observer and this is the point is that things moving in the universe it's always relative to something else and there's always something observing something else so to you if you could get back out of the event horizon you know, you would have experienced time differently to everybody else, but the universe would still hopefully be there. <laughs> it wouldn't have been that long of a time that the universe might not be there anymore. Um, but it just might be that the friend that's watching you wouldn't be there anymore. Could it be millions of years for that friend who was watching or, or more? It could have been, yeah. Depending how long it took you. Yeah. My word, it's such a scary, weird, strange thought, the whole thing. And then what? what's spaghettification? <laughs> My favourite word ever. You've got to say it properly. Yes. Spaghettification. It needs some sort of spaghettification. like... Spaghettification. Yeah, it's like Sean Connery, <laughs> spaghettification. So spaghettification is a real scientific term, which just makes me so happy in itself. And essentially it refers <laughs> to the stretching out of objects that happens close to black holes. So because the gradient of gravity is so steep near a black hole, the gravity is so much stronger, say if you were falling feet first into a black hole, it'd be so much stronger at your feet than at your head that you'd get stretched out like spaghetti, essentially into almost just one long thin chain of atoms. And we do see this happening to stars that stray too close to black holes as well. You know, they go from spherical stars to all of a sudden being shredded apart into just one big long, almost like tail of material that slowly swirls its way down towards the black hole. I suppose it depends how fast you're going into the black hole, although that's that's related to the gravity, isn't it? Uh, in terms of, would that be a really slow, drawn out, maybe at first it would be quite drawn out, wouldn't it? I think at first, if you're coming in quite fast, it you would obviously loop around the black hole because the, the faster you were going, obviously then the, the faster you'd probably loop around and back out as long as you didn't get too close. But the forces that you would feel because of that would be immense. And so that spaghettification would happen really quickly, but then you'd be left with it as you slowly looped back around and down again uh, is the issue. So yes, it's partly the strength of the, the mass of the black hole and the strength of its gravity, but it's also the speed that you come in at as well can affect you know how quickly or slowly that process happens and how dramatically 
it happens. Would you be dead already? Would it be too just if, if you're in a, a, a space suit or something? Would it be too hot or something like that around there? It depends. So we talk about black holes as if they're active and dormant, almost like volcanoes in a way. If a black hole was growing, if it was active, i.e. it was taking in material, you know, say before you'd rocked up, a big cloud of gas had come along and, and sort of got pulled down towards the black hole. As I said before, they're some of the brightest objects in the universe because that gas can get heated to incredible temperatures because of the speed it's going at and start to glow with some very high energy radiation like X-ray light, UV light. So if that happened first and you were falling into an active black hole, you'd probably essentially get fried before <laughs> you could probably experience the spaghettification. Fried or blinded, one best. of the two. <laughs> yeah. That's for the best, I think. Um, what what is it what is it about black holes that that has sort of led to your interest and what what is there that you're hoping that we as humans and you know can discover and get from them so i was always intrigued by them as a space obsessed 8 year old when i was getting telescopes and all the space books i could get my hands on because you know, you would have this fact file of everything in the universe and there'd be these beautiful pictures, say, from the Hubble Space Telescope, you, you know, and you'd finally get to the page on black holes and there'd just be an artist's impression. And I'd sort of resigned myself to the fact that there'd always be an artist's impression and we'd, you know, never actually truly be able to see one of these things and never know anything about them. And so they'd always sort of intrigued me slightly in that sense that they were almost mysterious and unknowable. Obviously, now we do have two images of two black holes, um, which is very exciting that, you know, I was almost proven wrong by eight-year-old going, well, well never mind. Um, but the thing that <laughs> probably hooked me the most was I started my PhD in 2013 um, on galaxies. So understanding the different shapes of galaxies, why they were the shapes they were, what evolutionary processes had they been through to make them that shape and were different shapes found in different areas of the universe, all these kind of questions. And in that research, I then got into sort of, you know, whether the different shapes stopped forming stars differently. Essentially, did the galaxies die? Did they die off um, and no longer make new stars differently at different rates, at different speeds, in different ways? And one thing that I always kept coming back to was if the supermassive black hole at the center of those galaxies was active, if it was growing. Because this was a big sort of like, this could throw everything off. Because in theory, what we think can happen is that as supermassive black holes bring in material to grow and they have, you know, this, this immense glow that can be seen across the entire universe as that gas spirals in, because that gas is so hot, essentially jostling for a space to get down into the black hole, it becomes a very turbulent region. And sometimes the only thing that can happen is that that pressure, that turbulence has to be relieved somehow. And essentially what you get is this big outburst of energy from the regions around the black hole. So you've not crossed the event horizon or anything like that. This is material that's still on the outskirts, you know, a safe enough distance away, but is, is glowing very, very, very strongly. Um, and you get this sort of big outburst of energy, of radiation, of particles, everything being shot back out into the galaxy. And we see this in many different places. We see jets coming out from galaxies um, and you see sort of maybe even, you know, these sort of big outflows as well from the centers. So we know this happens. And there's this idea that, this hypothesis, that essentially that outburst of energy can then affect the galaxy as a whole can probably like pick up hydrogen gas and expel it out of the galaxy. The hydrogen gas you would have used to make new stars. So the galaxy can't make any new stars. And th this process happening is kind of insane that it can do that. So there's a really famous galaxy called Messier 87, which is one of the ones we have the image of a black hole from at the middle. And it has this giant jet that's coming out of the central regions around that black hole. And I had this described to me as if um, the ga entire galaxy of a trillion stars was the size of a grain of sand, then the black hole in the center, the supermassive black hole in the center would be uh, the size of an atom and the jets that were expelled from it would go across your entire palm of your hand. 
that kind of scale. So that's what hooked me on it. The idea that something, yeah, okay, super massive, but tiny in terms of what size it is, it's tiny, can have an effect on something that is hundreds of thousands of light years across. Like the scales involved, the energies involved are just ridiculous. And we've never actually proven that these outbursts can sort of kill off a galaxy. We've only just sort of got like little anecdotes of, oh, maybe it's happening over there in one of these galaxies. But what we need it to do to make our sort of models of the entire universe work is it for it to happen in all galaxies. And so a lot of my research is now based on trying to prove that that does happen. Just because I'm like, you, you know, you can think about black holes all day, but you can't then forget what effects they then have on the, the galaxy around it. And the fact that they can possibly have such huge impacts fascinates me. Absolutely fascinates me. Are there supermassive black holes at the centre of every galaxy, including ours? And is ours active? We think there is a supermassive black hole at the centre of every galaxy. Yes. Um, there's some debate over whether they're in the smallest of galaxies, but that raises all sorts of questions about how they get supermassive if you don't start from the bottom and work up. Yes, there is one at the centre of the Milky Way. So uh, the Nobel Prize in Physics from a few years ago was one for showing just that. They looked at the stars in the very, very centre, orbiting the black hole closest in. And they, you know, they've seen one of them make a full loop around there in about 15 years or so. There's an amazing time lapse that you can see from sort of the 90s onwards of just seeing these stars loop around this thing that you cannot see. And so from the orbits, you know, from how fast all the stars are going, you can work out, well, how massive is the thing that they're orbiting around that we can't see? And it's 4 million times the mass of the sun. And it fits inside of the Earth's orbit around the sun. Like that's how small and dense and compact it would be. Um, so it's an incredible thing that we have it. It's actually under massive it's less massive than you would think it is given the size of the milky way galaxy um it's not active it's not currently growing so it's not giving out any uv or x-ray light from the center we detect a hint of radio emission really but that's about it um and so what people have speculated whether it's actually the reason that we're all here because our black hole isn't active and isn't giving off any sort of outburst of high energy radiation that could have had a knock-on effect to any sort of life forming. Um, so maybe we should be quite thankful that our black hole is under massive because <laughs> it hasn't grown because it hasn't uh, been active. <laughs> if that happened now, would we just like not even see it? We'd just die instantly? Um, I don't think we'd die instantly. And obviously there's also a very interesting... Um, issue here is that light travel time as well it could have already happened but we wouldn't know about it yet because it's a couple of tens of thousands of light years away so it would take the light from any outburst to 20,000 years or so to reach us which is you know interesting idea um so it could have happened 15,000 years ago and we won't know for another 5,000 years but also then that outburst from it also would take that long to reach us as well um, so I think it would be a, a slow ramp up kind of event because what you would see is you'd also see the gas that was going to fuel that growth, fuel that activity coming in as well. Um, we did see a while back, I think it was back in 20, was it 2017, something like that. We saw this gas cloud uh, coming in towards the black hole in the center and we thought we were going to get a bit of a show. It wasn't big enough to, you know, cause a huge amount of activity, but it would have been a brief sort of woo, fireworks kind of thing. Um, but it managed to loop around unscathed and, you know, barely scratched by the black hole and it was a bit of a letdown in the end. We were like, oh, oh. that would have been once in a lifetime, but never mind. <laughs> Do you spend a lot of time thinking about, I mean, you talked about uh, the, because we're, we're sort of on a, in a backwater part uh, you know neighborhood yeah. of of the galaxy of the milky Southern. way and yeah and you said in the book you wrote this bit about like something i'd never considered which is like you know some some planets have two stars so it's never nighttime which means you'd never know that stars exist and you wouldn't really be able to study them that's what a fascinating thought do you think about these hypothetical worlds quite often yeah sometimes like i mean you can't help it when you watch sci-fi even watching game of thrones when they're like winter is coming every 11 years and they're like how could, how would you have a system where you would get winter every 11 years you know things like this um <laughs> but also yeah just i can't i think when you think about science history and you sort of read that collective train of thought of all the scientists that have come before you, 
you can't help but wonder how much of it we wouldn't know if circumstances were ever so slightly different. Um, you know, for example, um, th we used to think the sun was fueled by coal. Most likely because in the Industrial Revolution, that's what our fuel was. You know? <laughs> and it's almost like, well, if we hadn't had and then, then those assumptions on whether it was fueled by coal led to lots of other different things in the dismissal and realizing that the earth was even older than we thought because the sun couldn't possibly be fueled for that long. So there's lots of different things that came into it. And you can't help but wonder, well, if coal wasn't a thing on earth, would we have even gone through that same thought process? You know, so many little things could have been ever so slightly different. So I think as I do delve into science history, I think about those kind of things more on sort of the, the how unlikely almost everything is um, but it's not something you know I'm not sat at my desk doing my own research you know having an existential crisis every day <laughs> thinking about these kind of things you know you get so bogged down in the data that you uh, you almost don't do that well just as we're so lucky that everything seems to have been just right for us to have made the discoveries that we have done there must be just as many that weren't quite right and have left, left us a little blind to things going on i i get a bit jealous because i imagine all the other planets in the center of the universe you know there's probably loads around this you know a bit closer to the center all just having a party hanging out with each other getting like <laughs> the equivalent of the like, the, the train the metro the tube just to one another's planets and hanging out you know yeah it would be a lot there'd be a lot closer so our nearest star is about four light years away so if we could travel at the speed of light it'd still take us four years to get there whereas closer into the center they might be i don't know a few light months away where there's a lot more stars and it's a lot denser and you know maybe if life did exist there it would be easier to do interstellar travel but then you've got the issue of where there's more stars there's more supernova and supernova give off also lots of high energy radiation so that could be very damaging to life on any planet like i think the fact that we are in the suburbs is another like well, that was good because otherwise we probably wouldn't have had life on our planets. We're very protected from all the radiation in the center of the galaxy and also all the intergalactic radiation as well on the very outskirts of our galaxy too. So I think we're just in a really good position. I think other uh, other planets are jealous of us <laughs> rather than the other way around. <laughs> You, you, I was just thinking, you started your book with this um, dizzying uh, description of how fast everything moves around each other, the, the, the Earth around the sun, the, the solar system around the galaxy, and the galaxy around everything else. So let's say Tom Cruise is on that spacewalk. And I, I guess this question is a little bit like another thing I don't understand, which is like why, when you jump on a train, why, don't, why doesn't the train continue? Why do you go with the train or whatever? Um, if he's gone on that spacewalk, why hasn't the Earth and the solar system and even our galaxy just gone zoop, straight past him? And he's like, oh, God, I'm on my own. <laughs> well, thankfully, I mean, thankfully, I don't know whether you'd argue about the use of the word thankfully. Thankfully, he's still tethered to the Earth system uh, through gravity, right? So, um, you know, he... Oh, yeah. If Even if he pushes himself away from the International Space Station, for example, that's still tied to the Earth's pull of gravity. It's in orbit around the Earth. It's essentially in free fall. It's just that the Earth keeps falling away from it. <laughs> so it just makes a circle, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, so it's on like this perfect free fall to take it in a circle. So it's perfectly in orbit all the time. So it's still completely tied to the Earth. Hence why he doesn't go shooting off into space. As for, you know, jumping on trains, it is a weird one. It's like, you know, like, all these chickens take flight in a lorry does the lorry still weigh the same you know yes it does because it's yeah. all part of the same oh. system it's a weird one right to wrap your head oh, around oh what that's mad yeah just blow my mad. Mind. Even, even, <laughs> I, I thought supermassive black holes were gonna blow my mind but the idea that all the chickens in the air make the lorry that weighs the same i can't because they're still flapping their wings so they're still like some push down on the air and that yeah Oh my god, you've blown my mind! Right, we've got to do another podcast about chickens on lorries. <laughs> Just chickens in general, yeah. No, on a train, obviously, like it's it's the wheels moving relative to the tracks. The ground that you're stood on in the train is not moving, and it's not moving relative to you either. So, hence why, if you jump up, you know you you still land back in the same place. <laughs> Yeah, I get. It. I want to say I get it because you, because I can't have a podcast where you explain something that most of the listeners have understood three times to me. It's just not good. I'll have to look it up afterwards properly. Yeah, sure. um, let's let's move on to something a bit simpler. Dark matter. Now, what is dark matter? Why do no scientists want to agree? They didn't want to agree about what it was. Is that right? They didn't almost want to. They, it was. I say that dark matter is the most begrudgingly accepted theory in the history of 
science. Because, you know, how do you admit that 90% of the universe is made of something you don't know what it is, despite overwhelming evidence? So there's just, I think people struggle with the idea of dark matter. Matter that is there, that we know is there because we can see its effects due to gravity, but we can't see it. We don't get any light from it at all. It doesn't interact with electromagnetism is like the, the physics sort of way of putting it. You've got four fundamental forces of the universe, electromagnetism, which is like, you know, light and magnets and electricity. You've got gravity. You've got the strong force, which holds atoms together. And then you've got the weak force, which is radioactivity. And basically we think that it basically, it just doesn't interact with electromagnetism, which is a gravity. No idea about strong and weak, could be radioactive. <laughs> is it held together in the same way as normal atoms? We don't know. Um, but that's one way of sort of thinking about it. And dark matter is something we've had evidence for for a century now. It's been it's, it was building and building and building through the 20th century. And it got to the point where people were arguing over it, just being like, there's so much evidence for it. This is the only option. Well, the other option is that we don't understand gravity properly. The problem is everywhere we seem to test Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is our best theory of gravity, it comes up great comes up trumps you know every single time which suggests that therefore we do understand gravity properly so there must be 90 percent of all the matter in the universe made of something we can't see which is mind-numbing to think it's that that much of it um and that it massively outweighs matter that we can see so it's it's, it's a weird one I, I like to sort of say to people well you can't see the wind but you do see the trees move. So you know that it's windy. <laughs> it's the same thing for dark matter. We don't see the dark matter itself, but we see its effects on everything else around it. And that's how we know that it's there. We just don't know what it's made of yet is the problem. But that's a job for particle physicists. And you know what? We've been waiting for 20 years and we're wondering, <laughs> like, come on guys. You've had 20 years. That, was it called CERN? Is that, was that, was that what they were trying to do? The, or the hydro something, hydron thingy? The Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Yeah, it's a huge particle accelerator that's a big ring that goes under Geneva and France. It's kilometers, kilometers long. Um, and essentially they accelerate particles too close to the speed of light to try and sort of give you massive energies where new particles can be created by smashing other ones together. And the hope is that, yes, they might find evidence of dark matter. They might create some dark matter. And what essentially that would be, would they know how much energy went into the collision and then they'd work out how much energy went into all the particles that were created at the end and they'd see that some was missing. And they'd be like, well, where did the missing energy go? We didn't see a particle come out. And then you'd think, okay, that might be dark matter. But there's also experiments like uh, up in Yorkshire in the Balby Mine where they've essentially got this underground chamber that they're hoping that essentially just a random particle of dark matter will come in one day and collide with something in this sort of chamber that I think is filled with, I don't know if it's water, but it's some sort of liquid where, you know, random particle of dark matter comes in, sort of just collides with one of those particles, like a pool, like a cue ball in a game of pool, just transfers a little bit of energy and they're like, oh, where'd that energy come from? And they're like, oh, it could be coming from dark matter, something like that. So there's lots of experiments like that going on around the world as well. So lots of things searching for it in lots of different ways in terms of a particle physics perspective trying to work out what it's made of uh, and meanwhile as astrophysicists are just piling up more and more evidence like oh some over here oh, some over here you know um that we know is there are we just like am i like breathing it in now it could be yeah i think it's something like there's um is it for every teaspoon of space in the solar system there's i think it might be either one or two hydrogen atoms masses worth of dark matter so a hydrogen atom is a its mass is a tiny tiny amount right it's 0.0 many 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 noughts one kilograms um and you've got that much worth of dark matter essentially in every teaspoon of space in the solar system so a very little amount but still there is it important to, like if we figured that out like what's what then happens i mean obviously interstellar was all about this like theory of gravity so that you can take off and like big big rocket full of people is it is it that i mean it un contributes to our understanding of gravity yeah definitely um but i think it has more of an impact on a larger scale so here on earth dark matter being very very sparse you know it doesn't have that much of an impact in terms of the structure of the universe and getting galaxies to form, 
we you can't in a simulation where you just sort of put all the laws of physics in you can't get galaxies to form and look the way they do in the universe if you don't have dark matter there as well so on a bigger scale it starts to have a really big impact as back to black holes because i got a, a, a sort of ending question you put it's probably always the last question for you but like what <laughs> what happens at the end how does the universe end what's like i don't know how you can do all that yeah. in like three or four minutes but how, <laughs> well, how does how does it all end it's all to do with so the universe is expanding so there's some energy that's locked into the universe that's causing that expansion. But then you've got all the stuff in the universe as well, like matter and dark matter, that with gravity is trying to pull everything together. So the end of the universe is essentially which one wins? Does gravity win or does the expansion win? And it's all about you know how much of the energy budget went into each thing. We can try and measure that in terms of fractions and we're not entirely sure. It's sort of right on the boundary like we're like oh maybe the expansion is just gonna win but our measurement uncertainty is so much that it might be the other way around and it might be the gravity just wins so if gravity did win sort of that fight then essentially it'd be like putting the universe on rewind everything instead of expanding would shrink again and all the matter in the universe would get closer and closer together until probably what you end up with is just one giant black hole or if the expansion wins essentially instead of a, a big bang we sort of call it a big rip essentially is that the universe will expand forever matter will get even further and further apart from each other and you'll end up with almost like a dark universe where you don't see anything in the sky because everything's just so far away anymore it's ironic because it doesn't feel like a big rip that that just feels like a sort of mellow boringness <laughs> that one <laughs> i know what you mean yeah i think the mellow boringness is more if they're perfectly balanced and eventually the expansion slows down and it just hits a happy medium that's that's the boring one isn't it that's the goldilocks kind of like this one was just well, right is it possible that like that stuff condenses to such a point again and then explodes again and then would it is it possible to explode again the way it did the last time so that we're just endlessly on repeat and we've done this a bajillion times and we're doing it again that is definitely one hypothesis yeah one idea that essentially we're just cycling through big bang big crunch as it's called this everything real back in uh, over and over endlessly and it's obviously an idea it's very theoretical and for me who uses telescopes is how do you prove that like is there some relic or record of the previous big bang big crunch cycle that's left somehow that's imprinted on our version of the universe it's a big question right um it's the same with sort of like if you think about is there multiverses out there as well not just our universe but there's others that as we expand next to us they contract and would there be some imprint of them being sort of on our borders somehow i use borders and next to very loosely obviously um because it's not in sort of anything that we can necessarily picture but yeah is there some imprint of those on our universe too those are the things that like for me to accept an idea we'd need some observational evidence to be like we saw this little thing in the universe and that means this that's almost what i need to be like yep that's that's definitely that's definitely what's happening i quite like the idea because uh, of going well i sort of do and sort of don't because i'm obsessed i'd love to live forever i know no one's supposed to say that everyone's supposed to no, pretend like I, oh I'd no i know no yeah oh 100%. good finally right no one admits it because all the bad people in films want to live forever it's always like voldemort <laughs> it's always like the bad guys because it's seen as like a selfish thing like wanting to live forever well you've obviously never seen twilight in twilight it's great oh. <laughs> you live forever oh. as a vampire but a vegetarian yeah, vampire but that's as a vampire that's different yeah. but you're never supposed yeah. to want to live forever because you're supposed to be like oh no i want to let other generations thrive and take my place and i want the world to, to have other things and also and also because you know you're going to die anyway so you have to sort of use this sort of confirmation bias and uh, tell yourself no no i want to i anyway but living forever would be great yeah. and uh but would it really be you if the whole universe has had to sort of compact and then explode again and then it's you again but you're not i don't think i'd expect is it me experiencing that i don't know i don't know whether your, your atoms jumbled up again i don't know but maybe live forever with the caveat of until the universe isn't is no more <laughs> yeah that's what i'm gonna do um tell us where 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 do you want to send people uh youtube twitter book that stuff um so i have a youtube channel where i post a video every week you know we do a monthly recap of space news you know if you want to stay on top of it like you talked about before uh that's uh, dr becky on youtube and you can find me on twitter at dr becky underscore 
Instagram, Dr. Becky underscore S as well. And uh, my book is linked from all the profiles as well if people want to go out and find it. I also did the audiobook myself as well. I narrated the audiobook, which was so much fun. Oh, well, if you like Dr. Becky's voice, get that audio <laughs> thing. If you don't, get the book. You've probably yeah. stopped listening already, but <laughs> get the book anyway. Thank you, Dr. Becky, for coming on. Everyone, do go check out her YouTube channel. It's got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers. People really love having complicated space theories and things broken down into easy-to-understand concepts uh, uh, that really get to the human and the existentialism of the matter. I've got loads of big episodes coming up. As, as I was saying before, a couple of really big names waiting for lawyer clearance, legal clearance for those, but that will happen very soon. And that's all, really. Um, I'm Andrew Golden. You've been on the edge. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.